Well, how do you think you're going to get there? I got a thumb. I got a middle finger. Oh, come on, sissy. Look, bud, you hit me. I didn't hit you that hard. You don't know what hard is. Just leave me alone. Fine. Forget it. Fine. Forget it. That's fine with me. See if I care. On the special episode of Movie Geeks United, we speak to returning guest, film historian, and author Nat Segaloff. Mr. Segaloff is the author of many notable books uh, on the subject of film. He's done several terrific biographies, uh, one on Arthur Penn, one on the great screenwriter Sterling Siliphant. Uh, he, he also penned one of the first biographies, maybe the first, on William Friedkin, I believe. Uh, mm -hmm. entitled Hurricane Billy that preceded uh, Mr. Friedkin's own autobiography. <laughs> and he did, you did a terrific book several years ago about the 50 final films of 50 directors, which is another book I would highly recommend. There are many, many others. I'm, I'm only scratching the surface, and I would recommend our listeners to investigate what you have out there because you, you've done some really, really good work. Um, Mr. Segaloff is a personal friend of the late director James Bridges, and he joins us to talk about one of that filmmaker's biggest successes, Urban Cowboy, in order to commemorate its 40th anniversary, which is occurring this month. So I thought we might start this out by getting listeners up to speed about where Bridges was in terms of his career when he took on Urban Cowboy, as he was just coming off the success of The China Syndrome, which was a pretty big hit in 1979, I, I, and very uh, timely, I should say, uh, considering that it was released at the same time as the Three Mile, Isle, Three Mile Island Meltdown, which the film is closely mirrors that. So we'll get you to talk about where his career was at this point uh, when he took on Urban Cowboy. You know, because I know he came from, he hailed from Arkansas. Um, right. right outside of Little Rock, I believe, if that's yeah, correct. Paris, Arkansas, little town, and uh, he came out to California to be an actor and uh, was doing a bit of acting when uh, that didn't quite work out and he decided to become a writer and ultimately a director. It was on one of those early films that he met his life partner, Jack Larson, when they were working on a small film, and um, uh, they, they simply hit it off. At one point, John Houseman even got involved and gave them some artistic direction. So you might say they kind of came in at a very top level, uh, going to uh, soirees at Sacco-Vertel's house and, and mixing with the rich and famous here, because in those days, we're talking the late 60s, you could actually make your way in Hollywood if you had talent. This is before the film school generation plugged in. Jim, early on, found an association with Robert Wise and Mark Robeson, two highly credited directors, in a company called the Filmmakers Company, which was set up at Universal. And he did some rewriting and secret rewriting and working on some scripts that they were doing. He, uh, of course, wrote the screenplay for Colossus the Forbin Project. He also worked on a Robert Wise film called Two People with Lindsay Wagner, which is how he met her for the paper chase, and uh, Peter Fonda. And just basically was a terrific writer until he finally got his directing chops on a picture called The Baby Maker, which is one of the first films that Scott Glenn was in which brings us back to Urban Cowboy again. And he was very, very highly touted. He made The Paper Chase in 73, which was based on John J. Osborne's story about Harvard Law students. That was when he asked his old mentor, John Houseman, to uh, act the role of Professor Kingsfield and, of course, won the Oscar for it. 
And uh, all these little pieces tie together eventually. He was so well thought of that literally, after Paper Chase, had his choice of anything he wanted to do. And one of the films he did was a picture called September 30, 1955, which is sometimes written as the numbers 9 slash 30 slash 55, which was about what happens to a group of kids in small town Arkansas on the date that James Dean dies. One of the fellows in that film, it introduced Thomas Hulse, uh, as an actor, and it also introduced Dennis Quaid, although Dennis Quaid had made a couple of small film appearances. This is his first major role. Richard Thomas was the star. And September 30, 1955, really kicked Bridges into high gear in its 1978 release, but it wasn't released very well because Universal didn't know what to do with it. Here's John Boy Walton, Richard Thomas, playing an anti-hero, a fellow who wears a red jacket like James Dean wore, but goes around raising hell after his hero is killed in that car crash. It's a very, very interesting film to watch, one of the very few movies ever made that has to do with the impact of celebrities on the audience. It was a real stretch for Richard, who, of course, at that point was John Boy Walton, and uh, uh, I think the studio didn't quite know what to do with it. We rescued the film in Boston. Michael Blowen of the Boston Globe and I just touted the hell out of it, got it a theatrical engagement, and it did fairly well. And this combined with the fact that I read the world premiere of The Paper Chase for Jim Bridges, kind of made us friends for a long time. He's a soft-spoken, wonderful, bright man, and, um, you know, these things happen. If you do publicity, which I was doing in those days, you don't really keep in touch with the people that you've had on press tour, but Jim is one of the rare ones, and we were in touch for the last 20 years of his life. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, and, and because he passed so early, and which we'll get into later, um, you know, the only thing that we have really to, because we, unfortunately he passed before the era of the audio commentary, which is pretty, you know, for a while there, it's not so prevalent anymore, but uh, there was a time in the in the um, late 90s, early 2000s, when it seemed like all the directors were coming in for the reissues on DVD of their films and chiming in with their thoughts, and he wasn't around to do that. So all we have are the people who knew them like, yourself, uh, the people who knew him, like yourself, uh, to give us those memories. So I wanted to talk about Urban Cowboy. Obviously, um, China Syndrome was a huge, huge hit. Uh, He, I guess at this point, was very bankable, uh, as they say, in industry speak. And so Urban Cowboy, um, uh, how did that all come about with his getting involved? And just curious about all that. Urban Cowboy was drawn from a story that Aaron Latham had written for Esquire magazine about a young couple in Texas who uh, decided to get married, and there were some marital problems. And and pretty much the uh, characters played by John Travolta and Deborah Winger in the film are based on them, only a slight change of, of the name. What Latham pointed out and what Bridges and the film try to do is show how today's mechanized oil industry, today's manufacturing, especially in Texas, has really taken the adventure out of life for all these people working in those fields. You know, the the Texans pride themselves on being kind of the the, the Old West, even though the Old West doesn't exist anymore. And so they would go to a big honky-tonk, in this case, uh, the biggest honky-tonk in America called Gillies, ride the mechanical bull, drink, maybe get into fights and dance. And this was their way of showing real adventure because in their real lives, they had no adventure. And the idea of juxtaposing what had happened to literally take the masculinity away, if you will, from the cowboy 
and they rediscovered it themselves in the bar, is what Urban Cowboy is about. Uh, it was obviously filmed on location. Um, I was curious about production stories. I know he co-wrote the screenplay with Aaron Latham, uh, using and he also used some of his previous collaborators, uh, notably the editor David Rollins, I think. Um, but I was curious about the actual production stories, the nuts and bolts of the production, if you knew anything about that and could share some of those. Well, what is really interesting is how it came together. And I think that's something that speaks a lot of the way Hollywood talks before we get into any production stories. Sure. I really have very few of those. It was a Robert Evans production, and God knows what happened to one of those. <laughs> but the film was originally announced to star Dennis Quaid, who, of course, had worked so effectively with Bridges in September 30, 1955. At this time, Dennis Quaid was not the big star. Um, I don't know if Breaking Away had had surfaced yet, but he was just a really good actor. And, uh, of course, since then, he's come to be known as the sane brother of Randy Quaid. Um, but he he landed it. Now, no story in Hollywood is a straight line. So at this same time, John Travolta was supposed to be in a film that Paul Schrader was making called American Gigolo, which Richard Gere was in ultimately, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Well, Travolta had been in a long-term relationship with actress Diana Hyland, who died of cancer in, I think it was 1977. That's correct. Travolta yes. was so stunned and so depressed that he had to pull out of American Gigolo, which was eventually cast with Richard Gere and went into production for release in 1980. In the meantime, Travolta, in those couple of years, decided to act again, and the script for Urban Cowboy came across his desk, and he said, I want to be in this movie. So what Jim Bridges had to do was call up Dennis Quaid, go over and see him, take him for a walk and say, Dennis, you are not going to be a star. Oh. Wow. Now, of course, he became a star eventually and a very good actor. But that's what happens. Now, Travolta didn't want to push Quaid out. Uh, remember, Bridges made two pictures with him, both um, Urban Cowboy and Perfect. And from all reports, Travolta is one of the sweethearts of the world, a really, really nice guy. So he didn't have that mean bone in his body. It's just one of those things the agents did. And they pushed Dennis out, and they put Travolta in. And, of course, the film became... A huge hit, not originally because of the film, but the soundtrack album sold all over the place, and that brought people in to see the movie, which is something that the Robert Stigwood organization is very happy about, because that's exactly what happened to their Saturday Night Fever when the album took off. So it's one of these synergy things that you really started seeing in the late 1970s and early 80s, where the conglomerates had all of the arms of their Hydra pushing a film. So Urban Cowboy became a sensation and a very, very big hit, and a very well-reviewed one, too, and did well for everybody. So that's the backstory of what gets us into Gillies. I, a lot of people have likened Urban Cowboy to Saturday Night Fever. They they say that it has a lot of similarities, except you take the disco and switch it out with country music, and it's essentially a, a very similar story. But I, I see some, some differences myself. I don't think it's that simple. Uh, right. Right. I think there's a little more to it than that, and, and I like your early summation of it, which I think kind of um, kind of pokes a couple of holes in those theories that, that people have said or those opinions that people have had of it over the years. Yeah, Saturday Night Fever is really closer to goodwill hunting than it is to anything else. It's about a guy from a small, closed-in environment who breaks away from everything he's ever known. That's Saturday Night Fever, and of course the antithesis of it is what happened to the sequel. Uh, which we won't even talk about. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, uh, g- getting the fish out of water 
sometimes as, as interesting as putting him in the water. And that's why I think so many people related to Saturday Night Fever, which is that it's about a guy who's king in his small pond, but he wants more than that. But does he have the mechanics and the ability to break away and do it? And that's that's what it was. I'm not sure if that really applies to Urban Cowboy, except that it had John Travolta and dancing. And that's it. Yes, and he does dance well in Urban Cowboy. Um, <laughs> I think uh, Saturday Night Fever kind of overshadowed his dancing ability, but there's some there's some really well choreographed uh, scenes in the film. And like, oh, and, and by the way, you know who did that? Don't you? you know who choreographed Urban Cowboy? I was going to say Patsy Swayze, uh, Patrick Swayze's right, mother. Right. Bud Swayze's mother, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, so, I, all Texas. Yeah, I believe it was her first film as a choreographer too, if memory serves uh, me think correct. So, yeah. And I think uh, Patrick Swayze's wife was an assistant, uh, or future wife at that point. I don't think they were married. Lisa Nemi, or maybe they were married at that point. I'm not. I'm not going to say for sure. But, uh, but anyway, they. Uh, his wife, I know, was involved as well uh, with the choreography. Yeah, the choreography is fantastic. Uh, as as is the cinematography. Uh, it's just incredibly well shot. Uh, I'm always so impressed with that and the. Obviously, lensed in Panavision, glorious Panavision. So, <laughs> well, it certainly wasn't suitable for television, and I think that the glorious production values made it something that you really had to see in a theater. And of course, I remember seeing it in the theater, as I'm sure you did, and the audience was just eating up every drop of it. It's just a wonderful film with plenty of humor and plenty of menace too. You know, I mean, Scott Glenn is a heck of a good Wesley. He's a really, really good villain in that sense. Oh yes, yes, he he's. Um... Proving he's adept at just about anything they can toss his way. So <laughs> whether yeah. it's the, the villain or the hero, he can he, he can do right, it. Yes, right, equal right. From rush. astronauts to, to villains, he can do whatever he wants. He said, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> or FBI agents. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so I know this was uh, one of. It's not Deborah Winger's first film, obviously, but it is one of the early things that we have on her resume. Now I know, or, or I, what I have gleaned from my research is that James Bridges was a mentor of sorts to Deborah Winger because her career really wasn't going anywhere fast until Urban Cowboy. That kind of put her in the into the stratosphere and launched her career, so to speak. So I was going to talk a little bit about that and his relationship with Deborah Winger and their uh, his mentoring her. Well, he called her Winger. Far as I know, whenever he'd refer to her with me, he'd always say, we wouldn't say Deborah. She may have been his secretary in the office for a while, I'm not sure. But she had a reputation of being kind of difficult to get along with, but never did with him. And I think the reason for that is that she is very talented and very impatient, and she doesn't like people who don't know what they're doing. And so when she's working with competent people, she's a dream. Not only there, but I mean, if you've ever seen Mike's Murder, it's a stunning performance. Mm-hmm. Everybody in that film does so well. I mean, Daryl Larson and Deborah Winger, especially. Uh, but but she can do anything, and, and I just think that she's kind of, you know, given a, a short shrift out here. Um, but but she's a fine actress. In fact, I, I bumped into her. We talked for a while after Jack Larson's memorial a couple of years ago, and she still looks terrific and has plenty of gumption and, and gall. And I, I hope that uh, she can do more stuff. I know. I, I would like to see her presence on screen more often uh, than what we what we've been getting here of of late. Uh, I know she did a film a couple of years back with Tracy Letts, The Lovers, which was pretty 
pretty good. Uh, she was quite memorable in that, but so I'd like to see more of that. But I, yeah, I knew that she had done uh, Slumber Party '57, which was a low-budget film that really didn't didn't go very far uh, in '77, and then it was. Uh, 1980, of course, with Urban Cowboys when things really... So there were some, some lean years there for her. Uh, until... Yeah, we've all seen uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, it's hard for anybody to get uh, traction out here, especially it's difficult for an actress because of the rife sexism and also this uh, notion that if anybody over 25 years old you know, is going to have to play mothers, that's what Hollywood has come to, especially with, with high-definition video. But I can tell you something interesting about how Hollywood works with, uh, with Bridges. It's a good story, I think. Um, I had been flown out from, oh, I think, Boston, a, a small television station in Boston where I was working, to California by Columbia Pictures when they were doing a big pitch. It's probably for Annie and a bunch of other stuff, which was a disastrous uh, affair. But um, I had not been treated well. Now, I'm not spoiled. As a former publicist, I understand that some people are more important than others. So I didn't really complain when I had you know, bad interview times and had a lot of downtime and couldn't get to certain people. But the morning after the press junket was over, before we all called our planes back, we were in the Beverly Hilton Hotel, and Jim and I were having breakfast in the coffee shop, when all of a sudden the entire publicity contingent for Columbia Pictures walks in and sits in the booth behind us. And they're talking with each other, and then they get really, really quiet, and they're looking over at Jim Bridges and me. Now, you've got to understand, the previous year he'd made the China Syndrome for them that saved the studio. And so they're talking and talking, and Jim turns around and says, who are those people? And I said, well, they're the people from Columbia Pictures. He said, did they treat you well? And I kind of shrugged. Now, nah, you know, he said, let's have some fun. So as we were leaving, he went over to the table and said, you all know Nat Segaloff, don't you? And he introduced me around to all these people. <laughs> By the time I had gotten back to Boston and ensconced in my TV station, there must have been three calls from Columbia Pictures. Do you have enough information, Nat? Is everything okay? Is there anything we can do for you? <laughs> that's Hollywood politics for you. <laughs> oh, that's great. Fantastic story. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, well, well, do you know of any challenges that he had in filming Urban Cowboy? I'm, I, I didn't know if there were any challenges that needed to be met. I mean, sometimes everything, uh, every film has its problems, of course, and I didn't know if you knew if he had ever related anything notable to you about that. He did, but I, but I know that Robert Evans was a factor in that because he's a very strong, was a very strong producer, and, and there may have been some reliance on music and trying to put as much music in as possible. But that's just spitballing. I honestly don't know that. Um, sorry, I, I, I didn't check Wikipedia on the film. I probably should have done that. <laughs> my, 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 my friendship was with Jim, not, not with all of his films. Uh, yes, well, understood. Uh, well, I know Irving Azoff was the executive producer of, of the, I mean, uh, co-producer, I believe, of the film as well. And I know the soundtrack was on the label uh, Asylum, I think. So he had a, a tie to to the uh, the soundtrack sales, of course. So he he had um, he he had a strong involvement in it as well. I'm, uh, from yeah. what I understand, it was something. You know, it was something of a comeback film for Travolta. I think we have to say that. I think <laughs> he just made moment by moment the year before, which was not well received to say the least. Travolta is an interesting case, and I'm not going to get into Scientology here. But he was managed by the Robert Stigwood organization, you know, through Greece and mm -hmm. Saturday Night Fever. And 
my one non-encounter with him, and I think this is indicative of why he had such a bad time. You know, when Moment My Moment came out, okay, it wasn't a really successful film, but the press really went after him, unfairly so. And I think that was because when he was toured, we tried to interview him for Saturday Night Fever. This was they were bringing him to various cities. And I was there with a crew from Evening Magazine, which uh, was a Westinghouse news magazine show, one of the first. Otherwise, it was known as PM Magazine all around the country. And we set up and we're waiting for him. And he's talking with the press on the other side of the room. He's supposed to come over to us and sit down for the interview. When the publicist for Stigwood came over and said, okay, here's the rules. Don't ask him about this. Don't ask him about that. Water or reading anything. And they really tried to control the whole thing. Meanwhile, you look across the room and there's Travolta laughing and having a great time eating and drinking with the press. And they love him. But with us, they tried to control so much, we said, we're out of here. And we turned down the interview with John Travolta. And I couldn't help but think that all the press blowback against him was not him, because he's a sweetheart, mm -hmm. but because of the way he was mishandled by his publicists who tried to control everybody. And I think once he escaped that yoke, made Urban Cowboy, then of course ultimately made Pulp Fiction, um, he crawled out from under that and uh, is now regarded as a really, really fine actor. That's a great point about uh, moment by moment. Definitely a misstep for him uh, coming off of Saturday Night Fever and um, in, in Greece, of course. And that was an incredibly strong one-two punch. And then the, this moment by moment was uh, just really is lives in, lives on in infamy as a, a footnote, if, if any, if nothing else. And so, Urban Cowboy, I guess, was something of a savior. Uh, yeah. Now, you know, moment by moment. I mean, I hate to digress like this. Stuart Byron, the great critic, who was also very, very gay, and that was an important part of his persona, mm -hmm. wrote about moment by moment, which was about a young man with an older woman. He said, now, if you make the young man a young girl, that's what the story is about. It's about a gay relationship, not about a September to May or mismatched age relationship. And, of course, uh, Lily Tomlin and, and Jane Wagner have been partners forever, and they're the ones who made the film. Mm -hmm. So if you take it from Stewart's point of view, he's quite accurate. That's what the film was about. They didn't push it as that. And if you look at it from that lens, you'll see the film has a great deal of integrity even though maybe some of the dramatics didn't quite work. Just an observation again. That's a good point, yeah. And, th and there's a physical similarity to uh, Travolta <laughs> and yeah, Lily Tomlin that doesn't that doesn't help matters <laughs> in, in that film's yeah. case. <laughs> but uh, um, I, I like the fact that Moment by Moment is actually now out there digitally, so you can get it. For years, they kind of... It was very, very hard to find, but you, there's actually a decent copy floating around out there. So that's that's good for people who are curious enough to want to see it. But yeah, Urban Cowboy was a, a, a savior to his career because uh, he definitely was was not in a good place. And unfortunately, after Urban Cowboy, he, he fell into uh, another uh, bad spot with the failure of Blowout, which I'm a huge fan of. Uh, Brian oh, it's De Palma's a great, film. great film. It is. Every, I, I love the Palme anyway, but this is such a, a subtle and wonderful and very, very bright and beautifully constructed film. Yeah. yeah. Well, he was trying to get yeah. range, I suppose. I mean, I got to hand it to him. In between that or Look Who's Talking or even the, the physicist that he made for Robert Altman, not very successfully. I mean, the guy was trying to stretch himself and did a very good job. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you have to give somebody credit for trying something new instead of doing the same old, same old. 
Yeah. So, um, so anyway, we'll uh, we'll move along with James Bridges' career uh, and talk about the the post urban cowboy years, which uh, he just never had really another success that could equal the one-two punch of China Syndrome and Urban Cowboy. Those were the high watermarks. And for various reasons, I know that he just really he he pumped out a couple of more films and. Uh, but not nearly enough uh, because he he died fairly young. But I know Mike's murder; he had a lot of problems with that. If you want to get into that just a little bit, that was his fo- the follow-up film uh, that he immediately when yeah. he launched into after Urban Cowboy, also with Deborah Winger. Deborah Winger, Paul Winfield, Mark Keelan playing Mike, and of course, a great performance by Daryl Larson, one of the most intelligent and fearful performances of a guy strung out on drugs you've ever seen. Mike's murder was about a girl who falls in love with a tennis pro, and then he disappears one day, and she tries to find out why. It turns out that he was murdered, there were drugs involved, and also some bisexuality. What was interesting about the film was that when uh, when Mike was killed, they showed it, and it was like beyond X-rated. It was very violent, and of course, Warner Brothers would demand some cutting on it. The thing is, he had a studio sneak, and a studio sneak is when the director takes the film out and tries to see how it plays in front of an audience. And I'm told there were some people who were from Hollywood there. I don't know if Evans was one of them. There were a number of people who decided to play pranks or whatever their motivation was. They were seated in the audience, and they started calling for the death of the director while Bridges was trying to watch this movie. Maybe they were joking. I don't know, but he ran up and hid in the projection room because he wanted to get away from what was a, a possible threat. The film didn't play well, and then he and Warner Brothers decided to cut it. It is still a terrifically powerful film, not overly bloody, and in fact, in taking the blood out, they made it even more frightening and powerful. It is just a, a beautifully structured, dramatic film. Winger is terrific, Larson is terrific, and I wish more people had seen Mike's Murder, but I think it was a lad production film, and for some reason was held up for a while. Bridges then moved on to uh, Perfect, wasn't it? that point yeah now perfect of course made my 10 best list because i understood it but then again i guess i was biased john travolta and jamie lee curtis in a story about a rolling stone reporter who goes out after the gym bunnies of los angeles of whom uh jamie lee curtis is one it turned out that her character had a backstory of having been molested by her swimming coach when all of this comes out it's an enormous invasion of privacy Aaron Latham and James Bridges wrote this as an original script, and it was structured like a magazine. As you know, a magazine has a cover, has a few lead stories, and then they jump to the back. They uh, skip over several pages, and these stories are finished later on in the book. Some stories are larger, some stories are smaller. And they structured this as if it was a magazine, where they would have some minor stories, some major stories, and then they'd follow through it, skipping back and forth. Now, I caught on to the structure, but most people just looked at girls in leotards, and that's what gave the film kind of a, a plastic look. But it was shot by Gordon Willis. It was shot very bright, very poppy, and uh, nothing like The Prince of Darkness Gordon Willis was known for. And it was a very L.A.-looking film, and people didn't take it seriously because of that. But I think it has an enormous inner integrity, and certainly a dramatic integrity. There's wonderful stuff with Travolta, who plays a reporter who doesn't quite know what ethics are about. And Jamie Lee Curtis is a stunningly sensitive role as the woman who's maligned. And that's my take on Perfect. That's a good take on it. Yeah, it, uh, I know it does have its defenders. It's it's uh, the kind of film that uh, 
you know, it, at the time of its release, I know it did fail, but as the years have gone on, it's one of those things that I think people have been uh, a little more forgiving, and they've been able to see its merits as t- as time has has moved along. I guess the uh, the final film that he made, of course, was Bright Lights, Big City, which starred Michael J. Fox, and um, was I think that was somewhat compromised as well. I think he had it was terribly compromised and and uh, something of a disaster. Um, it was made by MGM, mm-hmm. and it was they had begun shooting it with the, the wonderful director Joyce Chopra. Unfortunately, the producers didn't quite like what she was doing, and so they called in James Bridges to take over the film, and he wouldn't do it. He said, I'm not going to take over a film unless you uh, actually do fire the other director. I'm not going to go directing behind her. They did, and then he looked at the footage that she had shot and realized, Sidney Pollock was one of the producers, and looked at the footage and said, yeah, this really isn't going to work out. And so he uh, began rewriting it, and this is the problem. It was from a, a novel by Jay McInerney, which was all written in the uh, in the second person. I think very very affected writing about a cocaine addict who was also a fact checker for the New Yorker magazine. Well, right away they had Michael J. Fox and they had Kiefer Sutherland. Michael J. Fox was a cocaine addict, and um, uh, Kiefer Sutherland was, was his friend. And everybody said, well, "Mike Tracy, they, they should have switched the roles," but they didn't do that. So keep that in one part of your mind for a moment. Bridges made the adaptation, and a secretary somewhere along the line filed the wrong information with the Writers Guild and put Jay McInerney's name on the credit sheet for writing the screenplay. The screenplay then went to arbitration, and the Writers Guild decided they were going to give the credit to the screenplay to Jay McInerney. Jay McInerney said, I didn't write it, Bridges did. And the Guild wouldn't listen. And when Bridges complained, why are you doing this? The Guild told him, because you are a writer-director and we're trying to protect writers from people like you. So that's what we go into now. Then they started having previews. They started having previews of Bright Lights, Big City, in which Michael J. Fox does drugs. And everybody in the reports, all the little cards that came in, didn't like the idea of Michael J. Fox doing drugs. That's the character he played. They kept on cutting out instances of showing him doing drugs. Now, if you're making a movie about somebody who has a cocaine problem and you remove the cocaine, it kind of makes the film useless. So despite all the other wonderful performances they had in it, John Houseman, who was dying at the time, by the way, uh, Diane Wiest, uh, I'm starting to forget everybody who was in it, just amazing performances. All people could think of was that little nice guy from, what is it, Family Ties, doing live. And... It, it had a, they, they just couldn't get traction on the film. It's, it's difficult to watch now because you know what it could have been. And then he was supposed to work on a film called Road Show, which has been kicking around a Western for a long time, about a modern-day cattle drive. That's when he was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that was terrible timing. Um, I know he only had one more credit after... Uh, Bright Lights, Big City, and that was only as a writer, uh, as uh, White Hunter, Black Heart, which was directed by Clint Eastwood, of course. Um, mm-hmm. Was he at any point uh, thinking of directing that himself, and he was it due to his illness that he uh, that he that Clint Eastwood wound up directing it, or was that just a script that that had been lying around and Eastwood was attracted to it, or I was just curious if there was any intention on 
James Bridges' part to direct that himself at some point. He's very close to the writer of the book, uh, Peter Vertel, who was the uh, celebrated son of Saka Vertel, who was a friend of Garbo and held salons here in Los Angeles uh, for the longest time. Uh, Bridges adapted it with, with Vertel, and I don't know if he wanted to direct it. I heard all these stories about him wanting to direct it at the same time. He really hated to travel. The only place to shoot that movie, if they, if they didn't do it in Griffith Park, was going to have to be Africa or someplace. And so he bowed out of that and just uh, went along with the screenplay. And, of course, Eastwood did a, a credible job of acting and directing it. Uh, Bridges at the time, after Roadshow, was also working on something called Desert Rose, uh, for which I have no information. When um, he uh, uh, started doing radiation and chemotherapy, but was supposed to make a recovery. He was well on the way to making a recovery when all of a sudden, I don't know exactly what happened, maybe something in the hospital or whatever. He was doing production meetings. He was going to UCLA Medical Center, and then uh, the disease responded, but then it changed its mind, and uh, he died, interestingly, on June 6, 1993, and June 6 was the date in 1980 that Urban Cowboy was released. Yeah, now he had been ill for several years. I think three or four years. It wasn't a sudden thing. He he had been uh, very, yeah, very slow. Yeah, very slow. So we had me and Jack uh, and uh, Gary and Helene Grossman and I had dinner. Um, gosh, when not that long before it turned out to be we went to Orso's, which is not here either anymore. It turned out to be the last time that he uh, that he went out. Um, one one thing about him, he uh, he and Jack insisted on always picking up the check whenever we did dinner, and it got to the point of being a game. Whereas when we went out for this dinner, I arrived a half an hour early and gave the credit card to the maitre d, and uh, insisted that it be ours. When I think it was Jack when he found out we had done that, he told us something that he had heard from Marlon Brando. He said he he tried to reach the check once when he was having dinner with Marlon Brando. And Brando grabbed the check and said, if you don't let me pay this check, one of us is going to leave this restaurant naked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's great. We're, yeah. we're stringing these stories together, but it doesn't say squat about Urban Cowboy. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, we have some stuff there. We have some stuff about Urban Cowboy, um, for sure. But you know that that was you know, the the high mark, and then, uh, like I said, it's it's interesting. I'm uh, to to note how everything went from that point onward, which you know um, you you would think that after the Success of something like urban, like the success that Urban Cowboy had, that 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 would, you know, that he, that the um, the career would just hit the the stratosphere, and it just never quite did. And that's the well. I'll, I'll tell you something he told me, and I think this is wisdom. He was offered everything. I mean, every, you know, once you're hot, they'll give you everything. And he said, "Look, never do anything that you really don't want to do, because if you do." You're going to waste two or three years of your life on something, and you're going to wind up with nothing for it. Now, I've taken that advice. Of course, he was also wealthy because they paid him a lot. <laughs> the rest of us aren't. But I like that. Whatever, I've been asked to write a book or something, and I really can't get into it. I'm not trying to be finicky. It's just that I really want to spend two years of my life doing something that even I wouldn't read afterwards. And so I can imagine it's even more horrifying if you're a filmmaker. And they, you know, when you say no out here, they double their price. 
which, by the way, I've tried it. It doesn't work for everybody. But you can't do something you don't want to do because your heart won't be in it, and you'll just be a whore. Yes. Excellent. excellent point. That is an excellent point. And I, uh, like I said, I, as we spoke, as I said earlier, I just think it's a real tragedy that he didn't live at least a few more years where we could have gotten some of his insights into his own films because we've entered uh, a place in uh, film preservation, thankfully, where we have some of that. Uh, and, and now we have a, a lot of that with filmmakers who are no longer living. Uh, for instance, I just noticed the other day that the Criterion uh, special edition of Unmarried Woman contains a, an audio commentary with Paul Mazursky and Jill Clayberg, both of whom both of whom are no longer with us. And so those things are, are out, you know, a great resource to be able to draw upon. And I just hate that he wasn't able to to do some of that. Uh, that that the time just didn't work it's out. Funny you say that. You're right. There's a, a line I use in the front of my book, Final Cuts, the last films of 50 great directors, that he wrote for the character of Jimmy J in September 30, 1955, about the death of James Dean. And this applies to everybody, but it especially applies to Jim, to whom I dedicated the book. The line is, I feel cheated. I just feel cheated of all the great things he would have done that I'm never going to see. Turn to a stranger Just like a friend 